0: Hey guys, today we are talking about suicide on the podcast. If this is a difficult topic for you, I want to encourage you to reach out to 988, the Mental Health Crisis Line, and to your support people, important people in your life, because this can be hard to talk about sometimes, but it's really important. So. Thrival Guide, where we cover all of the things that graduate school didn't teach you. Welcome to the Therapist Thrival Guide. My name is Miranda Barker. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I am here with Dr. Lucas Vellini. Hello. Anything you'd like to add?
1: I wear these hats now.
0: It's true. If you are listening to this on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts, I'm. I think you might need to pause it and go to our YouTube channel so that you can see lucas in his newsies cap
1: newsies okay yeah you can call it that
0: that's what they're called well what else would you call it gatsby
1: cap uh 1920s gangster cap
0: i grew up with a lot of musical theater people around me i was not a musical theater theater person but i was surrounded by them and so i was just really i'm very familiar with the musical newsies yeah i just think you look like a grandpa
1: i feel like me
0: it fits it's good all right we are here today to talk about suicide. It's a really important topic for therapists to talk about, and yet it's actually really hard for therapists to talk about it at times, especially if you're first starting out. It's it's scary to think about having a client that is struggling with suicide ideation, but um, it's probably going to happen at some point. You need to be comfortable with having these conversations, and so we brought in an amazing guest for today. We have Brittany Misquick, and she is also a licensed clinical social worker. She is the national director of Protector Overwatch. Which... Dr.
1: Brittany Misquick.
0: Oh, you. I'm sorry, thank, thank you for, for clarifying. <laughs> Got yes. you.
2: I would have corrected you.
0: Okay, good, obviously. thank you, good. Um, Man, we were just, before we started rolling, before we started recording, Brittany and I were talking about how great it is to have another clinical social worker in the room, but I am actually just reminded now that I'm the only one without a doctorate. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So anyways, we brought Brittany in today because she is a suicidologist. Now you might be wondering, what is a suicidologist and how do they become a suicidologist? And I'm going to let Brittany answer that question.
2: Thank you, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk about the field of suicidology because, like you said, it's not it's not a topic that people talk about a lot, and we should be talking about it, especially as therapists. I started my career in Louisiana at a crisis center, and it it wasn't where I wanted to be. But my first internship, the uh, social worker didn't show up the first day at a school, and so I awkwardly sat outside of the principal's office for like half a day waiting for them to show up and then was told, well, you'll just have to go to the crisis center and, you know, do the suicide line. And I was like, what? What is suicide? What do you mean? Because it wasn't something that was ever talked about Hmm. growing up for me. And so my first internship in my master's program was at a crisis center where I worked the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline I facilitated a survivors of suicide support group, a children's bereavement group, and then I went out to the scene of suicide. So so it's what's called active postvention. Uh, We try to help the newly bereaved as close to the time of death as we can. Hmm. And so we worked in partnership with the coroner's office and local law enforcement. And when they would get to the scene and declare it a suicide, they'd call me and I would go out with someone else who had that lived experience and had lost someone to suicide. Wow. That's where my career started. So I just sort of hit the ground running with suicide prevention. And, you know, I look back on it, and a lot of times people think I have a personal connection to suicide, and that's why I got into this field, but it's not. I very vividly remember one night in a survivors of suicide support group, sitting in the room, And there were probably about 10 people there, 10 clients, and my co-facilitator. And one of the newly bereaved who were there, she was a a young woman who had lost her fiancé. And I watched her listen to someone else tell their story of suicide loss. And you could just see their eyes lock from across the room. Hmm. And that's what we call an installation of hope. It's just the weirdest thing I could actually see this person be there. And for the first time since she lost her fiance, go, okay, I'm going to get through this. Wow. And that moment was so important in my career Mm -hmm. because it's what made me want to become a suicidologist. Wow. That's amazing.
1: That's beautiful.
2: So fast forward to today,
0: what does it look like to be a suicidologist now? What does... What do you do?
2: Yeah, so there's three different areas in the field of suicidology. Prevention, intervention, and postvention. Prevention is the type of stuff that we do to prevent suicide. A lot of times that's things like education or things like uh, people going to the gym. I mean, really, that's individual suicide prevention. Mm -hmm. Intervention is when someone's thinking about suicide, actually intervening in that moment. And then postvention, what happens after someone dies by suicide. And I do work in all three of those areas. Mm. Um, I also have done research in suicide um, postvention. That's actually what my dissertation is on. And, you know, it's it's individual work, it's group work, and it, it's also, you know, macro level work. So I'm on the state's suicide prevention task force and the Governor's Challenge for veteran Suicide Prevention here mm. in Minnesota. So we do a lot, of, a lot of different things and work toward a lot of different initiatives uh, from a suicide prevention standpoint.
0: Wow. And I, I know that in previous conversations we've had, you've talked about having to testify in court at times. What, is, yes. what does that look like? Why do you have to testify in yeah. court?
2: Yeah, so I am certified as a retrospective fatality analyst. And so that means sometimes when people die by suicide or if it's an equivocal death, they'll call us in to do this big investigation. And we review medical records, employment records, social media. And we interview as many people as we can that were close to the person with a very strict protocol of about 300 questions. Hmm. And in the end, we try to answer the question, you know, why? Why now? And what, if anything, could have been done to prevent that suicide Wow. And so there have been times that I've been called in to testify on larger cases.
0: Hmm. So does that happen with every suicide?
2: An RFA? It's the retrospective. Yeah, yeah. analysis? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. It doesn't, it does not happen with every suicide. There are people across the world who are certified to do this type of work, but I mean, I can count them on my fingers and toes. Hmm. There's not a lot. Um, in Minnesota right now, we have a project going where we're trying to complete these types of investigations on every veteran who died mm. by suicide in a particular year. And it's it's turned out to be pretty challenging. In what way? Reaching out to family members mm. to try to, you know, ask them if they want to be involved in the research project. Yeah. So there's, you know, sometimes family members will approach us and ask someone who can do this to Mm -hmm. actually do an investigation for them because they want answers. Yeah. Other times, you know, it's for some type of legal case. And here we're doing research, so we're reaching out to those left behind and asking them if they want to take part in the research process. And we just haven't had a lot of people reach back out and respond. Mm -hmm. So that's been kind of tough.
0: Yeah. Why do you think they – do you think it's just hard? They don't really want to talk about it. They don't want to answer questions or feel like they were at fault in any way.
2: Or there could be a lot of things that go into it. I mean, right now we just sent out letters from the beginning of 2021, mm. and so we're looking at you know it's about a year past. and typically survivors of suicide loss will say that the first year is just a complete fog. Sure, and the second year is the worst. Mm. And so when I think about that, I think about, you know, the timing here. We're getting right into that second year, which sucks. But at the same time, from a research standpoint, we can't wait too long before we collect that data. Because if it's too long, Mm -hmm. we've got a lot of other issues.
0: Sure, sure. I mean, you just do such fascinating work. I'm I'm so excited to kind of dig into this topic because I think that – um, for my own practice, this will be helpful too. Um, I also want to just give a plug that Brittany has made some incredible content for us here at Ellie. And so I'll link to, um, she just made a video this last September about common myths about suicide. And so I'll put a link to that in the description. It's on YouTube. And she's also written a couple of really stellar blog posts for us. And so if you want to dig into more of this, this information, please, I'll please do. I'm gonna put the links in the description. Um, but I'm hoping that today we can really focus our conversation on that prevention aspect, especially um, you know, thinking about new therapists or, or therapists in general that are working with clients that might be struggling with some suicide ideation and wanting to just kind of jump into that. Lucas, I don't know if you have some thoughts about. Where we, where we go from here.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, like what's just keeping this relevant to kind of fresh outpatient therapists, you know, and what they what they can expect to see, uh, how, and just to feel more resourced, you know, and, and how to navigate it. Because it can be incredibly unsettling. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, this is what we're signing up for. You know, it's like, it's it's the extreme end of impaired mental health, you know, that road leads toward like the ultimate outcome of, of suicide, where things become so unbearably painful over such an extended period of time that you've come to terms with the fact that the only escape you see for yourself is death.
2: Yeah, and it's not it's not an easy thing to ask someone. You know, in a lot of the trainings I do, I ask people, how many of you are scared to ask the question, are you thinking about suicide? And typically there are some people who are like, I'm not scared. I can ask a question. I'm like,
1: okay. You should be a little scared.
2: And that's what I say. You know, I've Mm -hmm. asked the question. My co-trainer makes fun of me because I'm like, I've asked it thousands of times. And he's like, really, Brittany? Like, but if I think about it, you know, working the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline for eight years and working with high-risk population for 15 years, I've asked the question a lot of times. But every single time I ask, there's this pause. Like I ask the question and while I'm waiting for the person to answer, it's like I ooh, hmm. just like hold my breath mm-hmm. for a second waiting. Because what if the answer is yes? Yeah. So what if the answer is yes, Brittany? What What's yeah. the next thing you do? Yeah. And I'll, you know, if the answer is yes, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And that's.
1: Have you thought about Yes to the question, have you thought about suicide? Right. Every, every human on the planet should answer yes to that question. Who hasn't thought about suicide? And not necessarily in the realm of ideation, mm. you know, but just thought about suicide as a concept that exists as an option for all of us at any point. And I think like when it comes to outpatient therapy, the tricky dynamic is it becomes a mandated reporting you know and like how to create space for people for clients to feel safe to explore their suicidal ideation without feeling like their therapist is going to jump the gun and make a mandated report. Yeah. So right. like premature mandated reports when it comes to suicide can be incredibly damaging. Yes. to not only that therapeutic relationship, but it can also leave that it can damage future therapeutic relationships that that client might have with other therapists if they if they come if they take away from that, that if I mention suicide at all, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be hospitalized.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I refer to as the fear of consequence. Yeah. You know, especially with the population that I work with, first responders and veterans, for them, if they answer yes, it's, are you going to take away my badge, my gun? Mm -hmm. Are you going to pull me from my job? And there's such fear of consequence there that oftentimes they don't answer the question honestly. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think the being comfortable with the conversation is what's so important. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I always pause before, you know, I can take a breath and actually listen to what the person is going to say is because it's a life or death question and it's serious and I'm okay having the conversation, but it's still a serious conversation to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you are
0: training other therapists Give us some some ideas of, like, where does the conversation go from there?
2: Yeah. You know, I think it's before that. It's it's mm-hmm. how the conversation happens. I think that is the most important part because it has to happen naturally. And I tell a lot of the therapists, you know, the ones that will use the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, which is a great resource. But if you pull out a clipboard and you say, have you had thoughts of being better off dead? mm <laughs> yeah. And then you look up to the person, they're going to be like, seriously, F mm-hmm. off. Like, I'm not going to answer that, honestly.
0: Mm.
2: And so it's, it's about just being genuine. And when I ask the question, I do it a couple different ways. One is sort of a clarifying question. Like if somebody says something that kind of makes you go, hmm. So if somebody says, you know, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Next week, everything Everything will be fine. It'll all be done with then. I might say, when you say that, you know, it'll all be done with next week, what do you mean by that? Mm Because it kind of sounds like you're talking about suicide. Mm -hmm. And by actually saying the S word, it shows them that I'm comfortable with it and that I'm okay and willing to have a conversation. So there's that. And the other key piece, I think, is just showing them the evidence. That's a big one. There's a lot of people – Especially when we're talking about our loved ones and asking them who say, well, you know, I don't want them to get mad at me. And I haven't really had anyone get mad at me for asking the question. But if you tell them why you're asking, it kind of mitigates the opportunity for them to say, what? Oh, my God. Why would you ask me that? Yeah. So telling them why and normalizing it. So I might say, I know, Miranda, I noticed you've been showing up to meetings late. Lately, and you always talk about how you love the way your hair is, and it's such an important part of your identity, yet you got these bangs, <laughs> and you're the one who helped Lucas pick out that hat. So, you know, sometimes when people do anything like that, they might be thinking about suicide. And so I want to ask you, are you thinking about suicide? Mm-hmm. To so your... you say, why? Yeah. And then normalize it. You're like, look, under these circumstances that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I love the bangs
1: by the way. (laughs) I think (laughs) sometimes too I like to introduce it as a topic removed from the client.
2: Hmm. Tell me more.
1: So not necessarily like if I you know like if they are struggling with depression you know like you can sense when someone's depressed you can sense low affect Mm -hmm. low mood Um, and so in a way that might not even be relevant to what we were just talking about to just say what do you think about suicide? Mm. Like, what are your thoughts on suicide? Like, just as a notion. Yeah. Do you know anybody, Mm -hmm. you know, who's ever uh, experienced suicide? Mm -hmm. Have you been affected by it at all? You know, so talk about it as a concept that's at least somewhat depersonalized to them and their experience, which I also think is important, too, because... I think like suicide is a philosophical concept. It's a deeply philosophical concept. A lot of philosophers would argue it's the most philosophical concept, um, and you know, even as therapists, as humans, it's like what are our thoughts on suicide? You know, what are our personal beliefs around it? You know, I think those are things that are important for us to examine and know where we're at with it, so that when it does come up in a clinical context like we know where we're at with it and so our stuff will show up much less in that mm-hmm. conversation and it just creates more open space to explore where the client's at with it um and yeah i think introducing it as a philosophical concept is something that i've would say i've it's been beneficial especially with like teens and adolescents like yeah. i like to i like to bring it up within the context of hamlet mm. you know like that notion sure. of to be or not to be It's like, what do you think Hamlet was actually talking about? Like, what was Shakespeare getting at with that notion of like Hamlet being tortured over whether or not he should exist or choose not to exist? And to what extent does every human on the planet grapple with that? You know, and so like now it's like we're talking about it. It's this large, it feels like a large, massive concept, but it's okay because we're in the space with them and we're holding it and we're providing some structure to explore it safely. And it can go in all sorts of different directions from there.
2: Yeah, I really like that idea of introducing it like that, you know, when there's not a warning sign there, Mm -hmm. right? Like just to have that conversation early on when you're working with a client and see where they're at. And I think you hit on a really another key point there, which is being aware of your own attitudes and bias that you have. It's pretty common for new therapists to want to fix Mm -hmm. You know, and when someone says, yeah, I have been thinking about that, they may respond with, well, you don't want to do that. You've got your family. Come on, think about it. Your job is just so great. You've got this new hat. I mean, come on. And (coughs) they want to fix and go to it. And the, you know, the research and everything shows behind it is that they just want to talk about it. They just need to be heard. And this is what I say is. I think the coolest thing about suicide prevention is that most people can talk themselves out of suicide if they're given an opportunity to talk about it. Yes. And I love that. That's it. I love Mm. that.
1: And, like, that is – I would say that that is so much of what my method almost just, like, organically became. Because what you were just talking about was resistance. Mm -hmm. You know, and so many therapists will immediately get caught up in feeling the resistance. And Mm -hmm. when I say resistance, I mean – Your client says, like, I want to kill myself. And the therapist's immediate response is like, oh, my gosh, I don't want you to kill yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't kill yourself. And then it becomes about the therapist's agenda of of getting that client to not kill themselves and to talk them out of it. Yes. And telling them all the reasons why they shouldn't kill Um, themselves. As opposed to like the method I generally take, which you were speaking to on the ladder, was convince me. Mm -hmm. Like convince me. That you've fully examined life to the extent necessary to come to this resolute conclusion that you will be best off dead. Convince me of that. Yeah, and, and not in like an oppositional challenging way, mm-hmm. like in more of like an open, like yeah. curious, like how did you arrive there?
2: Yeah, and that's what I, you were about to say at the word curious, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, if you can just approach the conversation like that. Ask them what you want to know. You know, ideas and thoughts and questions will flood your mind when you hear someone say yes, but there's always this fear of asking them mm-hmm. uh, because we probably don't want to hear the answer. Mm-hmm. But if you can genuinely just engage in the conversation, a lot of times people will reach that resolve on their own.
0: So if if a client says, yes, I have a plan, I'm in a time and all of these different things, would your response be the same, or how, what would you do?
2: <laughs> I do so, so many different things based on the different situation. Sure. And this is where we start to think about like the spectrum of suicidality yeah. because the people with thoughts of suicide can be so different. It can be way on one end of the spectrum where it's, yeah, if I don't wake up tomorrow, I'd be okay with that. Then middle yeah. and the indifference road, toward death. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the middle of the road might be, yeah, I've thought about suicide. Mm-hmm. But then, all the way on the other end is Brittany. When I leave your office, I'm going to kill myself with the gun in my trunk. Mm-hmm. I intend to carry out this plan.
1: Yeah, that's a mandated report. Nothing short of that.
2: If yeah, if someone says that to you, yeah. and you can't get them to a safe space, yeah, is that pause?
0: <laughs> is that a federal? Like, is that some like that's well, it's a state mandated? to state? So mandated okay.
1: reporting varies state to state. It's okay. not. I mean, it's it, There's not much variance. There's more variance when it comes to, like, duty to warn. Sure. Like, when it comes to mandated reporting uh around that, it's gen- generally, you know, check your local state statutes yeah. um, first and foremost. But it's ideation, plan, intent, mm-hmm. and plan. Mm-hmm.
0: And so you call 911. Who do well, you, I mean, who you do don't you... jump the gun on it. But I mean, how,
1: well, how do yeah. you navigate that aspect? Right. Yeah, So
2: it doesn't... I can say I've reviewed at least 10 state statutes. I haven't seen one that spells it out that clearly. And so one of the things that people don't remember is that when someone is right in front of you and they're telling you that they're thinking of suicide, unless they have a weapon in their hand or they've ingested drugs already, they are safe. Yeah. Yeah. And like you can breathe a little Mm because they are safe. Mm -hmm. But you're so in it with them that sometimes it's hard to see that. Mm If by the end of your time with that person, they can agree to safety, then at that moment, they're not a risk to themselves. And so, yeah, right away, someone could come in and 10 minutes into your session, they could say, I've actually got a plan to kill myself. Here's what it is. And a therapist could turn to the phone and dial 911. Mm -hmm. Or
1: would not be best practice. I like would you wouldn't you right. wouldn't get sued for that. Like technically you'd be cleared for that. Right. And so like when I say like you need to check at least those three boxes in most states, that doesn't mean as soon as you check those boxes, you call nine one one. Right. You know, that just means that you're in the realm where all of your focus needs to shift toward. Absolutely. Finding ways to either ensure safety. And if you fail in doing that. That's when then you're Got responsible mm-hmm. sure. for not letting that person leave the safe space they're in right now, unless you know they're going to get to another safe space.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure, yeah. And so that that's the time to shift the conversation and talk about what's going on with them. And it's not necessarily going to be thoughts of suicide. It's going to be all the things. And oftentimes, people who have thoughts of suicide, it's not that they're thinking about wanting to die it's that they don't want to live they don't want to live with the way that things are right now yeah and so internally there's this suicidal ambivalence this struggle where part of them wants to die part of them wants to live and what we ultimately want to get to is being able to focus on that part of them that wants to live Mm -hmm. but they've got to work through that part that wants to die first
1: yeah, and that's where like when you create that space to really explore like again that question of like how do you know like how how are you so certain that that's the only option you know it, well one it requires them to activate parts of their brain and mind to answer that question logically that will mm-hmm. help them regulate the emotionality that drives mm-hmm. you know a lot of suicidality but also it's it's I, I would agree that in my experience it's large a more honest statement is often, like I can no longer tolerate living life as I know it, yes. as I've been living it up mm-hmm. until this point. But what they're not saying is I've rejected every single possibility of all the different ways in which life could be lived. And and like going back to Hamlet, it's like that's what Shakespeare was getting at. It's like ultimately, how can we ever say that life is not worth living unless we've truly examined and experienced the infinite number of ways in which life can be lived.
2: Hmm. But sometimes people can't see that.
1: Oh, no, you can't, especially when you're bogged down in depression over an extended period of time. It's like what that does to your brain, how that Mm -hmm. closes your lens to the world, and it becomes more and more narrow. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that is, you know, I would say often a product of that individual never having space to explore anything otherwise.
2: Yeah, and not having the supports to in the right people to even ask that question. Right. And that's one of the biggest protective factors with suicide is social connection. Yeah. Having your people. Yeah. And if you don't have your people, what do you have, mm-hmm. you know? So how do you go about,
0: I mean, we're talking about having this conversation, they're mm-hmm. in front of you, they have some, they have suicidal ideation. Um, how do you get them to the point of safety planning? Yeah. I mean, because you're exploring this idea and then you're you're kind of transitioning and needing to kind of make some somewhat of a plan.
2: Sure. So what I use is the the assist model, which is applied suicide intervention skills training. And that's a two day training that of all the trainings I train, I've gone to, it's one of my favorites. It's two days just about suicide, which sounds like a lot, but mm. it gives you so many other skills. And what it talks about is that while you're hearing the person's story, you're learning about all these things that are going on. You're sort of listening for what assist calls a turning point, which is part of this person that we kind of want to grab onto and hold. And so sometimes you hear them talk about hope in some way.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's like they, they might hope that things will get better. And so that's when I'd say, "All right, well, you know, if you've got some hope that things are going to get better, why don't we talk about keeping you safe right now mm. and just talk about what that might look like?" And so then I transition to the safety planning part.
0: Yeah. So what would you include in a in a safety plan with a client?
2: Yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of different things and maybe this is something we can share in the resources Definitely. too. Definitely. Yeah, the Stanley and Brown safety plan is one of my favorites. And what's cool about it is that it can actually be used as an intervention tool as well. So you could take a whole session with a client and just work on a safety plan. And I use it also as crisis response plans. So if you have a client who's typically in crisis or someone who's, you know, had moderate to severe thoughts of suicide, doing that early on in your work with them is is helpful because then you've got it to fall back on. Mm Um, in that particular model, you know, it, it is first identifying warning signs. In other words, how do you know that you need to bust out this plan mm-hmm. and check it out? Then you would do some internal things, um, then reach out for social support. What do you mean internal things? Oh, that was a really vague statement, wasn't it? <laughs> internal coping skills. So yep. it might be you're going to take a hot bath mm-hmm. or watch a Will Ferrell movie, mm-hmm. something like that. Okay. And these, you know, this is for, it's a little bit more aimed at someone who's, you know, maybe at home, they realize they're thinking about suicide and they're like, I made that safety plan with my therapist. Let me go get it out. Do you think they're going to? I I hope so. Yeah. And the way that I use them for that particular thing, what I like about it, there's actually a couple different apps out there that you can send the safety plan to someone. Hmm. And so, like I said, first you're trying to deal with things on your own, the internal coping strategies. Yeah. And then you go to informal stuff like who can distract me? Mm-hmm. What's a coffee shop I can go to? And then it's a little bit more formal in, you know, hey Miranda, I'm having a rough day. Mm-hmm. Can you come hang out with mm-hmm. me? And so if if you two were my people, I would have ideally shared that safety plan with you. Got it. Yeah. So you know when I call you and mm-hmm. I'm like, "Hey, can can you come hang out?" Mm-hmm. that means I'm having a rough day. In terms of my thoughts of suicide. Yeah. And so when I work with clients, I always encourage them to send it to the people that they list on mm.
0: there. I mean, that just seems so scary, though, for a client to have to share something like that with with a family member or with someone that's important to them. Are Do you ever have clients that are resistant to that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I do. Mm-hmm. But I don't always ask it. Or give them the option. It's like, <laughs> sure. So who are we going to send this to? Yeah.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So you mm-hmm. listed
2: Lucas and Miranda as your people. Okay. So if the top right button, if you click that, you can email this to them. Mm, got it. Sure. You know, it's sort yep. of that. Mm, we're going to do, do what we're going to do. safe. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that, you know, that's one type of safety plan that I think used as an intervention is really neat. It's a little bit different when someone's in your office because sure. you're not going to be like. What internal coping strategies can you use right now, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, normally at that point when we're talking about the safety plan, that means they've agreed to keep safe for now, Mm. in the here and now. What does that mean? I don't know, right? Every situation is different. It's not a long-term thing. And so normally I check in with the person and I I ask what they've got going on for the rest of the day. Mm. Like that's a Mm no-brainer. You know, where are you going? Who are you going to be with? What can you do for yourself? Yeah. And um, then I'll talk about connecting them to resources, which in this case, you know, if we're talking about me being their therapist, that's one thing. But I'd want to know about their social connection. Mm -hmm. So maybe they would benefit from some type of support group. Or, you know, maybe they want to get back into going to church. And so maybe include those things in there. And we always want to talk about means restriction. And so if someone's plan involved a firearm, Mm -hmm. I would want to know where it is and how we can safely disable it. Yeah. So whether that's removing it from the home, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with some clients, especially the population I work with, discharging the clip is more than I can even ask for sometimes. What does that mean?
1: Taking the clip out of their gun, yeah. Let alone, yeah. Yeah, letting yeah. Did, alone getting rid of their gun. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Asking, I see what you're saying. I was. Did emailed. my visualization not help there? For the people who are not watching this on YouTube, uh, Brittany just mimed taking a magazine or a clip or whatever it's called out of yeah.
2: a gun. Although it really just looked like me kind of pushing my hands together. Which, in some...
1: which is interesting because it's at the same time a source of security for them. Right. Well, also the product that could ultimately result yeah. in their demise. Hmm.
2: Yeah. And the goal of even just taking out the clip is it's one extra step. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's why gun locks are effective mm-hmm. because you put, you know, this cable lock through. Um, I should know my gun anatomy better that, you know, where the trigger is. Mm-hmm. And then you can't you can't pull yeah. the trigger. And so you lock it up. Something anything
1: people, to make you think twice.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some people will take the lock and freeze it in a block of ice. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah.
1: And so it's like the contemplation of suicide can often happen over a phase of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the act of suicide can still sometimes be impulsive.
2: Sure.
0: I'm going to ask a question that I feel like we've talked about before, but Mm -hmm. a lot of people think this. But what about... like? If you talk about suicide, are you putting the answer or the putting putting the thought in their head? Mm-hmm. Are you worried about Ugh. triggering them? You know?
2: Yeah. Lucas, when you get your next paycheck, are you gonna send me half of it? No. Okay, so since I just asked him that, have I like <laughs> witchcraft him into oh, crap. having maybe, to do maybe it? Maybe now I am. Ah! <laughs> right? Like, no human is that influential. Mm-hmm. Just by asking someone if they're thinking about it, it's not going to make them do it. And the research shows that asking can actually serve as a deterrent yeah. and give the person a sense of relief. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. actually a good thing just to ask. Mm.
1: And so like, you talked about the social piece. I think that's a big one. You know, like a lot of individuals, the, the isolation is a significant mm-hmm. part of uh, depression. And so sometimes with people, it's, it's a matter of. You know, it's like you, you've told me about the people in your life and they all kind of seem to suck. Like you have shitty people in your life, you know, and it's like, and you frame it like that. And then that can lead to like a renewed installation of hope. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. cause like if like hope is significant, I see hope mm-hmm. as such a critical aspect of this, you know, it's just like I've, it's like I've, I've encountered depression, you know, like personally, like I've seen it's darkness and it's heavy. Like, my mm-hmm. God, is it. And you don't even know how heavy it is until it starts to lift mm-hmm. a little bit. But it's like I was never at a place of losing hope. Mm. You know, like like the darkest point I went to, it's like I never lost sight of the hope of where I ultimately wanted to get get to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but when an individual is in a place of totally diminished hope, it's like, my gosh, are they vulnerable. Yeah. You know, and so even when a client's there too, one of the things I tend to do is instead of, you know, kind of just like putting the pressure and expectation on them to develop hope, like I just ask them if if they could get behind me having hope mm. on behalf of them. Mm. You know, it's like it's like I know I know I, I can appreciate that where you're at the notion of hope is almost offensive. Mm. You know, but I truly and sincerely have hope for you. Yeah. And it's like, and I, I will hold that hope for as long as I have to.
0: As therapists, we are so often the people that hold on to hope for our yeah. clients. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I would talk about in my child protection days all the time where, like, I, I had to be the person that held on to hope for so many of my clients. And
1: that's okay. It's like yeah. that's not taking on our clients' stuff. You know, it's like that's not like some of the narratives around, like, self-care and boundaries, Mm -hmm. you know, like might deter people from that. Mm -hmm. But it's like, no, it's like we absolutely need to be their resource of hope. And it's like, and if we don't sincerely have that hope, then it's like we shouldn't be the person working with them. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, just even being able to say I believe in you and I believe. It's like like,
1: I can see a totally different life for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, it's like, because I see who you are and you're amazing. There Mm -hmm. are so many amazing things about you. But again, it's like everyone in your life sucks. <laughs> You're surrounded by a whole lot of shitty people.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that's that kind of leveraging the relationship you have with someone. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've worked with people who have no hope. and they get to that point, they've got no hope and they're set. They're set on it. And I'm like, well, f- oh, I almost said the F word. <laughs> Fudge. Fork. F- well, fork. <laughs> I'm going to have to, you know, take this one step further But I have this kind of, like, last-ditch effort. If it's someone that I've developed a good relationship with, I can say, you know, okay, look, we've been working together for so many months now. Will you just humor me? Are you at least willing to talk about a safety plan right now? Hmm. You just talk Mm -hmm. about it with me. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, do it for me. Like, are you willing to at least do that? And normally at that point, once we start talking about it, You know, I can get people there. And, of course, it's them getting there themselves, right? But even just saying, until tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. How about I give you a call tomorrow morning and check in with you? Like, are you okay with that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, just kind of using the relationship that you've built with them and that rapport. And sometimes you're the only good person (laughs) in their life if they're surrounded by shitty people. Mm -hmm. And
1: sometimes a safety plan is like, Will you promise to see me next week?
2: Now, I've heard that
0: there are some problematic parts about, like, making – what are they called? Um, safety contracts. Safety contracts. Yeah. Now, I've heard that there are some – problem. like, do you know what I'm talking yes. about? I don't know what yeah. I'm Does talking about. Does
1: research but, identify them as problematic?
2: Yes. Yes. So – Basically, what is referred to as a safety contract is, I, Brittany Misquick, promise to not kill myself Ugh. and will come into your office next week. Mm. Sign That's just and for date. attorneys. And honestly.
1: Oh, you know, like liability. That's liability stuff. And yeah.
2: it's not worth the paper it's written on. Yeah. And, mm. and so it's like, what's the point of that?
0: So research says that it's not actually Correct. helpful.
2: Yeah. And what I've noticed is that a lot of old school therapists, people who you know went to school 30 years ago, mm-hmm. will still use those words. And then they teach it to Hmm. the, Hmm. you know, their interns that come in or the younger therapists. And I teach a master's of social work, um, a couple different classes. And my students oftentimes talk about that because I talk about suicide to them. they would be like, so what do I do if we have safety contracts? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, geez, let me send you this email that I've already written out that has all these citations (laughs) and explains Mm -hmm. why it's not helpful. Mm -hmm.
0: I was just curious because I feel like I have worked with a lot of people who have struggled with drug use. And mm-hmm. similarly, like a, some old school treatment places will yeah. often have them do like these little contracts of I promise I won't, you know, smoke weed or do yeah. this or I would, whatever. I would,
1: I would have signed those all day in high school. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I sure. promise. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> going to get me out of your office. Yeah. There you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's true. I mean, that's true. Does this mean you, I can yeah, leave I without you calling the cops? Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. So what are some other kind of like last tips that you would have for people who are working with, for, for new therapists or just sure. therapists in general that are scared or mm-hmm. worried or just kind of, yeah, worried about, you know, when that first client walks in the door that says, you know, I'm feeling
2: this way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just because you're a therapist doesn't mean you have to know everything in this field. And you're not going to. And you're not going to be an expert in every area. So one of the things that I I always like to make sure people know are the resources. So 988 um, is available for text and phone call. And if you're at a point with a client where you think it's to that point where you need to break confidentiality to keep them safe, an interim step there or a kind of half step is to call 988. And you can say, look, I'm, I'm a new therapist. I've got a client who's thinking of suicide. And, you know, I, I'm just not quite sure what to do here. Or I'm not sure if I need to break confidentiality. Like with
0: the client in the room. With the
2: client in the room. And you can say they're willing to talk to you. Hmm. And that person on the phone has been thoroughly trained in suicide assessment. And so they can assess the situation and come up with a plan for the person, and you can just physically be there with them. Mm. Now, this is something that I would normally recommend to not therapists. But if, if you're a brand-new therapist, I mean, that's absolutely something that you can do. Mm-hmm. So that's an option.
1: 988 is great. Yeah, like yeah, That was a super well-done initiative. Which surprised me because mm-hmm. it was a government initiative, you know, <laughs> and like usually they're like slapstick Band-Aid yeah. type stuff. But like this is thorough. Like 988 is for anybody mm-hmm. that has at any, any tie to suicidality yeah. whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's like call 988. Or text. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: The other thing I like is just being comfortable having conversations about suicide. So I always say, you know, most people don't talk about suicide at their dinner table. I do. I know that's probably a little weird, but Lucas, the way that you talked about bringing it up with your clients, like, why not do that at dinner? Yeah. Why not just have that conversation with your friends or family? And if you can't have it with them, I don't know. What does that mean? Yeah. What does that show? It's like it's
1: like that old traditional archaic teaching that's like dumb. That's like, if we shelter our kids from this, it'll mm-hmm. never affect
2: mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm.
1: It's like. Are people still seriously doing that? It happens. Oh, I know. Yeah.
0: Do you think that like whenever a prominent celebrity dies by suicide or, you know, it, when it's in the news more, do you think that like how do you think that affects yeah, suicide rates or even just like the conversation about suicide?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, there are media guidelines out there and how to talk about suicide um they actually just updated them recently. and the way that it's talked about and what happens after someone dies by suicide can impact people who are already vulnerable. Sure. So once thirteen reasons why came out, mm-hmm. you know, people who were mentally healthy it was fine for them to watch it, even though there were a lot of things I would not have recommended. Oh in that gosh show, that one right? scene.
1: Oh, yeah. I still—I just had the same visceral reaction I had the moment yeah. I saw that.
2: I've never seen it, and so I'm still you, torn about that. Can you imagine if you were in a vulnerable state? Yeah, I was if working in
1: were... adolescent day treatment when that series came out. Oh no, that's so. so like, I, I, yeah, I, that's I, bad. I binged that as like a duty. Yeah. Because all the students were watching it. Oh yeah. man. And it was intense.
2: And that sucks because then what it does is it it increases the risk for Mm -hmm. those youth who are already in a vulnerable state. And so, you know, there was research that came out recently um, about adolescent females around that time where suicide rates went up um, for, you know, people who had watched it. And so that's why the messaging behind it is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, There's been a lot about it in the recent weeks with a recent celebrity who died by suicide. And I don't know that I can really recall anything that had 988 on it, mm. anything that I watched or read. Mm. And, like, that's just one of the, to me, that's the easiest thing. I'm going
1: to start asking my friends I know who have no ties to mental health if they've caught wind of 988 yet. Because mm. that might be one of those things where, like, of course we know about it, like it's spread through, like, wildfire in the, for mental health care workers, but I don't know where the general public's at yeah. with it. Mm. Like, they just might not know that it's a thing yet. True and i do i think we're gonna we'll definitely do a part 2 for a number of reasons i think we should dig into the complexity of the philosophical notions that we introduced um also you're just like one of my favorite people oh i thank you i, I think like it. i i've been so impressed with you as a professional um i love what you do i love how sincere you are and your commitment to the demographics you work with um i also love that you're uh you're, you're from a culture that rubs against the grain of Minnesota. So I've always got to kick it. Like when I first started working here, people were like, oh, that's Brittany. She's, she does a law enforcement program. She's she's like kind of a little rough around the edges, you know? <laughs> and like almost as if it was like a warning to stay away, and immediately I was like, I'm going to be best friends with her. <laughs> oh, funny. <laughs> sure enough, yeah. here we are.
2: You know, it's a little different where I grew up down in the Dirty South. Yeah, the big easy. Say it like it is. I love yeah. it.
0: I appreciate that about you. Well, awesome. So again, the Mental Health Crisis Line is 988. And we'll have all of these resources in the description of the video or the podcast, wherever you're listening. And thank you so much, Brittany, for joining. Yeah. I really appreciate your time and thank walking through this. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And now Brittany's off to go facilitate. A support group, yeah, right outside the door, right outside. Because we're real therapists,
2: (laughs) we are in real life.
1: Well, I'm a corporate sellout. You're real.